She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I'm here once more with Chloe Skye. It's me. Chloe's been back for a couple weeks, and Chloe, I have an awesome broad for you today. Have you heard of Merle Evers? I don't think so. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of her either. And specifically, it's been a little while since I've done uh, a civil rights broad. So I wanted to do a civil rights broad. And so I was Googling around and I'm just blown away because we've seen movies about her and her story. And yet why I didn't know her name is a mystery. So I'm not a mystery. It's racism. Right. (laughs) But um, we might remember her most for she delivered the invocation at the second inauguration of President Obama in 2013. Oh. So for our generation, that was probably like her biggest spotlight moment. And she was the first woman and first non-clergy member to perform the prayer. And it's so good. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. I just watched it while I was doing my research. And she's epic because she's still alive today. She was the first woman to do it? First woman and first non-clergy member to deliver the invocation. The invocation is the prayer, you know, that they at the beginning. Right. And that's it in 2013? Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't really be surprised. Like, every president's been a man, so why would they have a, a woman read the prayer? But like, And why did I just laugh? That was terrible. I, <laughs> I should be crying. It's, yeah. It's, I laugh so I don't cry, I think, is what happens. Hopefully the audience hears that. I think that's clear. But let's talk about Merle. So um, Merle was born on March 17th, 1933 in Vicksburg, Mississippi. She was the daughter of, she is the daughter of James Van Dyke Beasley, who is a delivery man, and Mildred Washington Beasley, who at the time was 16 years old. Her mom was only 16 when she had her. And then her parents separate when she's just a year old and her mom moves away from Vicksburg, but decided that Merle was too young to travel with her. And she leaves Merle to be raised by her paternal grandmother, Annie McCain Beasley, and aunt, Merle Beasley Polk. Apparently her mom's mom worked a full-time job. So her dad's mom and mom's sister. Both women were school teachers and raised up Merle and with a strong education. And she took a lot of inspiration from that upbringing. And it sounds like they were a better option than her mom would have been. <laughs> based on based on the very brief information that the sources say about her mom. Mm. So Merle went to the Magnolia School and she took piano lessons and she performed songs, piano pieces. She recited poetry at school and in church and at local clubs. And she graduates from Magnolia High School, which is also called Bowman High School, in 1950. She was very active. And then in 1950, after high school, she starts attending Alcorn A&M College in Lorman, Mississippi. And she does great there, too. She's an honor student. While she's there, she also meets and eventually marries Medgar Evers. Is that a familiar name to you, Medgar Evers? No. Okay. Because the story is about to become like this epic. I hadn't heard the story because 
of my white privilege upbringing. Of course. Yep. I got one of those too. However, their story turns out to be like a big epic one in the battle for civil rights. Mm. So many people may be familiar with their names. So after they marry, they move to Mound Bayou, Mississippi, and they both got jobs working for Magnolia Mutual Life Insurance Company. Part of their jobs was a bunch of travel around the Mississippi Delta. So they were tra- you know, traveling, selling insurance or dealing with claims and whatnot. And as they're going through the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, they witness this, the exorbitant burden of poverty and injustice Black people were experiencing. And they were like, you know what? We want to make a difference. Like, it, life can't be like this. We have to make a change. So in 1954, Medgar and Murley opened and managed the first NAACP Mississippi State Office. And at the beginning, Medgar's the Mississippi field secretary and Murley's his secretary. And together they organize voter registration drives and civil rights demonstrations. And then for the next decade, they are organizing and campaigning for voting rights, economic stability, fair housing, education, justice. They fought to end segregation in schools and in public facilities. Uh, I'm kind of glossing over because they did, uh, they obviously did many things within these categories, right? But they also investigated lynchings and they were extremely instrumental, apparently, in getting witnesses and evidence for the Emmett Till murder case. So they were working on like front and center of Mississippi civil rights. Some of the big boycotts that were going on, they, they were organizing and leading them. And of course, being prominent civil rights leaders in Mississippi, they both became extremely high profile targets for the pro, the white supremacists, the pro, the, the, the friendly sources I found call them pro-segregationist violence and terrorism. But let's say it's the white supremacists and specifically the KKK. Uh, and they were constantly receiving threats. And in 1962, they were in the middle of organizing a boycott of Jackson's white businesses, and their home is firebombed by the KKK. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Like, not just threats, like mm-hmm. real, real violence. And then in June 63, Medgar is on his way home from work after some organizing, and he's walking up his driveway, and he's shot in the back. There's a quote from Murley, quote, I opened the door, and there was Medgar at the steps face down in blood. Oh, geez. The children ran out and were shouting, Daddy, get up. Oh, that's devastating. And Medgar died 50 minutes later at the hospital. (sighs) If you, I'm going to post the pictures uh, that I found, you know, in all my research on the website. There's pictures of her at the funeral comforting her son and her looking over Medgar's body and, and... President Kennedy, so so he, he was a you know they were both very prominent figures in the civil rights movement. So the murder of Medgar sparked a ton of unrest, like across cities, kind of across the South. And there were marches. Kennedy like specifically writes a letter consoling her, and they call they they call it the the letter of condolence to Medgar Evers' widow. They don't even use her name. Oh. And there's this version of the letter, too, that, like, spelled their names wrong. And they said Evans instead of Evers. I'm like, come on, Kennedy. Come on. But the FBI file spells their name wrong, too. Fuck the FBI. And so rewards are offered by the governor of Mississippi and a few different all-white newspapers for information about the murderer. But not very many people come forward. And the FBI opened an investigation which uncovers a subject. Byron de la Beckwith 
who was an outspoken opponent of integration and a member, uh, a founding member of Mississippi's White Citizens Council and a Klan member, of course, a Klan member. And a gun was found 150 feet from the site of the shooting and it had his fingerprint on it. And several witnesses placed him in the Evers' neighborhood the night of the murder. But of course, Byron denies that he shot Medgar. He claimed mm-hmm. his gun was stolen days before. He produced a bunch of witnesses, one of them a policeman who swore that Byron was like 60 miles away from the Evers' home the night he was killed. I mean, I do find it strange that the gun would have been left at the scene of the crime. Like, that feels a little bit weird. It feels like idiotic. It feels like yeah. that guy is just an idiot. Either that guy's a complete moron or there was a conspiracy to cover up some deeper, like civil rights leaders were being assassinated left and right at this time. And we know, yes. you know, the government was involved in a number of them. Yes. I'm not going to say for sure that's what happened, but it wouldn't surprise me to find out that they organize something and then let like some KKK guy take the fall because that's easy and believable. Maybe, but then also maybe it also was just that he felt so secure in the fact that he wasn't going to get prosecuted that he just like didn't give a shit. Right. Like I can see that just as easily as government conspiracy. KKK arrogance is also very believable. Yeah. So Byron is tried twice for the crime, but both times the all white juries are deadlocked. So both times it's they can't come to a, an agreement? Correct. Oh my god. Because that's... he has all these witnesses, including a policeman. Well, you gotta trust a the police. Policeman. Yeah, police never lie. So there's a lot more around this event that I'm definitely kind of glossing over, and I encourage listeners, please look it up. Like this should be part of our history that we should learn about and talk about. But anyway, I wanna get back to Merley because her whole life's not entirely about the death of her husband. Four years after her husband's death and right after Byron is, is acquitted and released, so in, in, this is 1967 now, Merle moves to California with her three children and she goes to college, back to college, I guess, and she earn, gets a Bachelor of Arts degree in sociology from Pomona College. Uh, she also publishes a book about her late husband and all his work called For Us, The Living. And then in 1976, she marries... Another civil rights activist, Walter Williams. Between 1968 and 1970, uh, she was the director of planning at the Center for Educational Opportunity at the Claremont Colleges. She also apparently ran for Congress twice, but did not win. From 73 to 75, she is the vice president for advertising and publicity at a New York-based advertising firm, Seligman and Lops. That's not a name I've said before. Uh, And in 1975, she moves to Los Angeles and she becomes the National Director for Community Affairs for the Atlantic Richfield Company, ARCO. Uh, And she was responsible for developing and managing all the corporate programs, including overseeing for community projects, outreach programs, public and private partnership programs, and staff development, um, securing money for a lot of organizations, including the National Women's Educational Fund, providing meals for the poor and the homeless, In 1987, Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley appoints her the first black female commissioner to the Board of Public Works, and she holds that position for eight years. Good for her. And in the 1990s, she joins the NAACP again, but on the Board of Directors this time. 
1995, she runs for chair of the board. And at, the, at this particular period in time, I guess the NAACP was going through some financial trouble. And Murley basically spearheaded the effort to get the organization back on firm financial footing again. And three years later, she had, her mission was complete, and she stepped down from the board. But she didn't stop working because she's mm-hmm. an, an amazing powerhouse. So she promptly goes to work establishing the Medgar Evers Institute in Jackson, Mississippi to preserve the legacy of her husband. She publishes her autobiography, Watch Me Fly, What I Learned on the Way to Becoming the Woman I Was Meant to Be. And she edits a book based on her husband's writing called The Autobiography of Medgar Evers, A Hero's Life and Legacy Revealed Through His Writings, Letters, and Speeches. Being the epic, epic legend she is, Murley received tons of other honors over the course of her life. She has seven honorary doctorates. She was Woman of the Year in 1998 by Ms. Magazine. Uh, Ebony Magazine named her one of the most 100 fascinating Black women of the 20th century. And I am, I'm glad to say, not, nothing's glad about the story, but she did finally get justice or see justice for her husband's murder. A full three decades after the murder, Dela Beckwith was found guilty and sent to prison. He was in his 70s at that point, but finally some justice was served. And Chloe, do you remember the movie, The Ghosts of Mississippi? No, I was I was a little baby when that came out and it wouldn't have been one that my family like sought out a little bit were you a little baby in 96 i I was six in 96 dang i'm older than you i keep forgetting yeah not much well anyway ghost of mississippi is about that trial in 94 Uh, oh i'm gonna watch that and Whoopi goldberg plays merley oh wow yeah that's jumping to the top of my watch list directed by rob reiner huh anyway in January 2013, Murley delivers the invocation at Barack Obama's second presidential inauguration. I said it already. I'll say it again. Everyone should just go watch it. I'm going to have it posted on the website, broadsyoushouldknow.com. Uh, I think you will love her invocation. She is still alive today. She's 88 years old. She's still fighting for secure equal rights and preserving those rights for future generations. She has her three children and six grandchildren. She's a boss bitch, really. I'm at the end of my notes, Chloe, and I feel like probably there's much more that I didn't even list because she just has been active for so long. And, you know, much like Coretta Scott King, who we did an episode about a while Mm -hmm. back, she was not defined solely by her husband and the work he did. She went on to do so much work after he was gone and continues to to this day. And I'm just amazed. And I, I even look at the picture of like this picture from Time Magazine where she's at the funeral. And I just am in awe of the strength and resilience of a woman who experienced such horror and still continues to fight and has done so much good for so many people. And Murley is just an incredible beacon. Yeah. This episode should serve as a uh, jumping off point to to continue learning more about Murley because she sounds incredible and her work absolutely vital. Yeah. I'm, I know I'm going to be doing some more. Oh, yeah. And she definitely, like, in terms of the NAACP, she definitely is a huge part of that organization throughout her life. Um, and the work that she and Medgar did there really established them in Mississippi. So, you know, and then saving them from potential financial disaster later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's, she, she never she's quite instrumental to, to the success of the organization, at least in yeah. one of its stages. In fact, a bunch of this research literally came from the NAACP website because they had a huge, long, robust biography about her, which is nice because I feel like sometimes organization websites don't list a lot about their folks. So. Mm-hmm. But if they're that important... <laughs> 
She is a broad you should know, definitely a broad you should know for Black History Month, and definitely a broad that all y'all should share with everyone else, because I didn't know her name, and I should have. Because literally, I watched her. I watched the inauguration. I literally watched her and didn't look her up, because I was apparently still a giant asshole in (laughs) 2013. I mean, I I guess I never look up the person who reads the prayer at the inauguration either. (laughs) But the first woman and and non-clergy, that like blows my mind, so. Yeah. And it also makes me like throw back, throw another hug over to Obama, who I just never stop loving. So, so he's, you know, he was a pretty good egg. There's some, <laughs> there's some good things. Well, thank you, Chloe, for being here from early Evers. Yeah, thank you for bringing her. I'm, I'm ashamed and embarrassed. I didn't, I didn't know her name before now. Same, but now we do, and now we can now talk we do. About her. We, can, we can. It's remedied, and it's remedied for all of the listeners as well. To learn more about Merle Evers, see pictures, clippings, and videos, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're over there, you can click to the About page and read more about Chloe Sky, her bio, and links to all her cool stuff and her social media. Are you following Broads You Should Know yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, then you should help spread the word. Share us with your family and friends, and better yet, leave us a review on your podcasting platform. It really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if Merle Evers' story leaves you wanting to learn more, I recommend you check out some of our other episodes about the incredible broads of the civil rights movement. You should check out Coretta Scott King, Ella Jo Baker, Dorothy Bolden, Mary McLeod Bethune, and Polly Murray. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>